Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. For a long time, people would say to children who were active or overactive, you know, what's wrong with you? Or if they're not learning in school, what's wrong with you? And it was the common phrase. It was a common phrase. I heard teachers say that to people. And so then the shift came with, to what happened to you? How can I help? You know, and so even if you don't say those words, you think those words, you think about what might have happened, you know, in this child life. We don't even have to know. And then I took it a step further and said, what's strong with you? And so that is, that's the thing. That's the bridge. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi there, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Dr. Lori Leigh Bellhumer. Dr. Bellhumer is a renowned leader in the field of mental health and wellness, with over 30 years of experience serving children and their families. Her commitment is to empowering young individuals and adults who care for them. Here's Dr. Lori Leigh Bellhumer. Hi, I'm here with Lori Leigh Bellhumer, Dr. Lori Leigh Bellhumer. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the Bonus Babies podcast. Your work is so important, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear about it. You've just written a very powerful new book called Mastering Resilience, Transforming into Your Purpose. And I want to ask you about the art of Kintsugi, because you have a beautiful image of a porcelain bowl on the cover of your book that is repaired with mm -hmm. gold. Can you tell me about that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because I love the symbolism of the Kintsugi bowl. The Kintsugi bowl is a very common symbol of recovering from trauma, healing from trauma. And the symbol itself, the bowl itself, has been broken and then put back together with precious metals. It's a Japanese uh, tradition, and I know there are places where you can go and do this, you know, to create one. Uh, and it's a bowl that is, is broken, and then the brokenness is filled in with precious metals so that the result is more valuable, stronger, and you know, more beautiful because of the fine metals. And that represents who we become when we are on our healing journey of mastering resilience. And certainly when we 
you know, consider ourselves to be super resilient. That's really what that symbol is. And uh, it's just a beautiful thing. I agree. I think it's so powerful. And I think a lot of people who have experienced trauma, especially people who have experienced trauma as children, they somehow feel that they're broken, flawed. Mm, Yes. And that the damage is irreparable. And what this is saying is, n- no, you you might be broken. There might be a flaw. There might there might be a chip. There might be damage. But you can actually become stronger and more beautiful. That's exactly that's exactly <laughs> awesome. right. That's exactly right. And you know, you mentioned those exact words. That's exactly what I told myself when I was, you know, earlier in my life. I'm broken. I'm irreparably broken. And I believed that about myself. And so to, to uh, have been able to shift that thinking and stand firm and know, you know, that I'm as valuable as, or, you know, this Kintsugi bowl, the symbol of it, uh, that, uh, yes, it's stronger than ever. Right. So can you tell me then a little bit about your childhood? I, I know it was rough. So can you track back a little bit for us? Mm-hmm. So uh, I've learned to... Uh, sort of conceptualize or use the lens of adverse childhood experiences. So that's something that I've, you know, I've become an expert in, I teach about it, and adverse childhood experiences are 10 specific adversities that occurred during childhood in uh, in the categories of abuse, neglect, and family dysfunction. And so there are 10 specific ones. This was research back in the late 90s. And so I have eight out of 10. I had five by the time I was in second grade and then eight by the time I graduated high school. So that is, you know, yes, every kind of abuse, emotional neglect, uh, very hateful things said into me, about me, and then a parent who was alcoholic or uh, there was um, drug misuse, mental illness in the family and a divorce. That was one of the 10 way back in 90, uh, in the late 90s, divorce or separation from a parent. Right. And actually your mom had five marriages, right? She did. She was searching for love. She, in retrospect, now that I've learned more and more about ACEs. I must say this because it comes from a place of true compassion. Um, My grandmother in the 40s divorced her first husband and uh, and my mother was three. And so in retrospect, though, my mom never talked about her child or just superficially. I imagine that was a difficult decision for my grandmother, you know, to say the least, you know, it's shunning and all of that. And at the age of three, so I assume now that my mother was exposed to ACEs when she was younger and that her brain was wired as a result of that. There was no intervention. And that I also suspected that my grandmother uh, also uh, was exposed to ACEs. And so it's generational. There's generational trauma, intergenerational trauma. Of course, you know, I've, I've realized that as well about my own family. Even if it's not discussed, we now know there is such a thing as generational trauma. Yes. And things, it gets repeated. So you're, mm-hmm. in, your, in your book, you're very frank about what happened to you. Uh, how was the process of writing the book for you as a person? 
The process of writing the book, I really thought hard about what experiences to share in the book. And my lens for that was really, does sharing this piece about myself and my childhood and my life, is it, does it bring hope to the reader? Does it you know, um, help them on their process? Because I also use the stories of other people, you know, collective person uh, in, yes. in a couple of people. And so it was theirs too, you know, their stories. And what about their stories would bring hope and healing to the reader? Well, I, I so appreciate it because as I was reading, it did give me hope. I thought if she has gone through what she's writing about and come to the other side of it, then anybody can. <laughs> as long as they have That's the tools, the right, <laughs> to help them do it, right? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Thank you for yeah. saying that. That you know that feels very affirming for me. Thank you. Yeah, and I, this is totally separate. But oh, I'm just going to sh- show you my my version of my book of yours. It's all oh, filled with postmarks. <laughs> it's yours too, right? So there's a. That's, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah, but the book even has a really good feel. You know. Like the cover is really cool. The pages, it's really well done. I mean, Thank you, you know, so because I, I, I'm a writer, you, I didn't know I would end up appreciating these things. Like not only how, how the cover looks, but how it feels, how the pages feel, how the font looks. Mm. It's just, a, it's beautifully done and it's beautifully written and very, very informative and useful. So Thank you. I, I, I can't stress that enough. Yeah. Um, well, you I know, may I respond to that? Because oh, this is so, again, so affirming because when I wrote the book, I was thinking about the audience always. And I was just like, like pouring love into the pages of the book, like coming from that place of just pure love. And, and if I wasn't in that state, I didn't write. I see. So if as I long as... Yes. If I couldn't, for whatever reason, if I was distracted, I had other things that were also on my to-do list um, and I couldn't get in that state for an extended period of time. Yes, I stopped. Well, that's uh, that's actually a way of taking care of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, yes. you were taking care of the reader, but also taking care of yourself. Yes. Hmm. That's wonderful. Uh, I want to ask you about... There was something that happened... Uh, around 2008 that you write about in, in the book where there was there were there were problems going on and you came to a realization about yourself uh, can you can you tell that for us again yes um, so what was happening in 2008 you know among um, a lot of other people we had a real estate holding company and we had done it very conservatively uh, we had tons of reserves and uh, and then everything imploded, you know, with the banks and real estate and all of that. And so our tenants were out of work, so they couldn't pay the rent. And, and there were repairs that were needed, you know, for it to be suitable for them to live in. And so we saw exactly, like we projected exactly when the reserves would end. And... It wasn't very long, you know. And so what was happening also at that time 
is that people were saying it's the fault of the person who bought the property. It's their fault. It's your fault. It's not the bank's fault, not this, not anything else. It's your fault. And so I kept hearing that. And, you know, we had a real estate uh, agent that was working for us, attempting to sell all of the properties. And we didn't have buyers and we dropped the price from 350000 to 99000 and still nobody uh, would buy it. And so we were, uh, you know, in that state. And the real estate guy was saying, you know, we were, we were contemplating um, bankruptcy. And, and so the real estate guy says, you can't, you know, file for bankruptcy because, you know, you, you committed to selling these homes. So it wouldn't be in his best interest. And so I uh, reacted to that and then he left. And then I was like going in my brain, what is it that I'm telling myself about myself? It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. And immediately a flashback occurred to a memory that I had never forgotten, to a trauma, an assault that occurred when I was 14 years old. And so what I realized, because my husband was like, wow, that's a pretty strong reaction to the real estate guy. And what I realized was my reaction was out of proportion. And so I connected the emotion, the fight or flight freeze response to that current event in 2008 and said, oh, this is an opportunity to heal that trauma from the past. And so that is what happened in 2008. And so once I realized that, it was amazing how quickly I was able to uh, reframe it and not reframe it like, you know, I mean, it was horrible, bad things that person, you know, the people who were involved in it should have been held responsible for it at the time. And, you know, I, I didn't tell anyone, you know, I didn't right. tell and you blamed yourself. You, yes, you I said it was your fault. Oh, your yes. fault. Your fault. I totally blame myself. Yes. Completely. 100% blame myself and didn't think until the me too movement that they were culpable but I still had this feeling at the time. Well, actually, no, I don't know if it was the me in the Me Too. I know what it was in the Me Too movement. I wanted to name names, and I chose not to. Uh, but uh, that's exactly it. But in two thousand, yeah, but it was tempting. Yeah. Yes, mm. and so I was. Um, yes, so I was uh, connecting that assault with the feelings of what was happening in two thousand eight. Had a breakthrough about that. As soon as I connected it, it was easier to, and I, I started to use the word reframe, but it wasn't reframe because it really was really bad. Um, but it was also an opportunity for me to say, I am resilient. I've gotten through worse and, um, and that I can get through this. I can heal this particular thing. And it was such a relief, uh, just such a relief because I had seen the world through the thinking that things are my fault, even when they're not. So I'd, I'd applied that to um, various circumstances, and now I don't. Right, and I can imagine, too, that that was happening unconsciously, regularly. And until you named it and made that link and, and had that recognition, only when you did that were you actually able to recover from that event. 
and not have it affect the rest of your life over yes. and over and over again. Right? Yes. And that, that was how, yes, that, that's my experience of how it happened. I think there's also, there are, are also, there's a recipe, there are other ways to kind of get through that. And so for me, it was an instant connection. It's not like I hadn't thought of that event, you know, over the years, but it was really the connection with the emotion. And I was ready for that. And it wasn't, a repressed memory of any kind. It was, I know you acknowledged that it happened. Right. I totally never forgot. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting because, uh, that's part of why I think your book is so important because you track techniques to heal. I mean, that's, that's as simple as that. Right. Right. So how did you, uh, what, what happened? I mean, I, I understand you are, you are a therapist. I'm sure a very, very effective one. You've been doing this now for decades, over 30 years, right? Yeah. And um, you, you probably helped to heal hundreds of thousands of people. But so you, you didn't just write a book about your process and your development and your growth. You decided to write a book that people could use as a handbook. In fact, you even provide workbooks as well and exercises. It's a, how, yeah. how did you arrive at that? Okay. So I was just going to say the workbook is coming soon. It's at the publisher. So it's coming out very soon. Um, and maybe we'll be out by the time this podcast is uh, released. I hope so. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I used that 30 years of experience of the stories that people told me, the, uh, the things that worked with students that I was an educational consultant and I had students who were getting you know, really bad grades and, you know, moving, moving them up to A's literally. And, and so I looked at what worked with them, what worked with my counselors in training, what, what worked with my teachers in training, what worked with uh, my students when I was teaching college, what I knew the people that talked to me had tremendous adversity as well. And so what were the, what was the, the thread if you will, that kind of ran through all of those things. So I reverse engineered it and I identified eight specific ingredients that everybody used at one point or another in their healing journey and and then put it together as a recipe. <laughs> that's so great. That's that's why it's so great. <laughs> um, you know, I and I, I said this a little bit at the top, but I actually already feel better after reading the book, I think I mentioned that to you when we spoke briefly on the phone, yeah. I had already, and I'm going back to it regularly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over certain parts of it to say, how, how can this inform me today? Mm-hmm. How can I transform with Lori's help today? I, I know it sounds silly, but it's really true. Yeah. Well, what's really wonderful about it is Again, that was the intent. And yeah. so I'm so happy to hear, I'm blessed to hear that uh, it's helped you and that you're using it as a resource. That's amazing. That's really mm-hmm. And I'm, yeah, and I can imagine how many people it's going to help too. So there are people who've had the kind of upbringing and, and background that you've had who don't end up in a place where they can make it through school, um, have one career that transforms into another career, mm-hmm. and 
continue to grow. So what is it about you, you think, whether something happened to you in your teens or your 20s where somehow you could get to the next place? Because you didn't have a whole lot of help. Well, you had help from people who told you really smart, Mentors, yes. I had help. Not, you know, not... I had emotional support from a number right, you, of right. teachers right. and mentors in my life. Yes. Right. Cause you didn't have it at home, but you had yeah, it. Clearly. Right. And so there were people, and I've, I've often heard people say this, that even one person can change your life. Somebody who sees something in you. Right. So, so we all have like authentic characteristics and qualities that make us who we are. And it's based on like our intrinsic characteristics, things that we were born with, things of, you know, our, our qualities and all of that. And we have intrinsic value just because we exist. And then also there are those unique characteristics that make us who we are. And so remembering that, and those are strengths. What I want to mention real quick is like one of the things we're reframing and Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry wrote a book with this phrase, don't, what happened to you? What happened to you? And so for a long time, people would say to children who were active or overactive, you know, what's wrong with you? Or if they're not learning in school, what's wrong with you? And it was the common phrase. It was a common phrase. I heard teachers say that to people. And so then the shift came with, to what happened to you? How can I help? You know, and so even if you don't say those words, you think those words, you think about what might have happened, you know, in this child life. We don't even have to know. And then I took it a step further and said, what's strong in you? What are the things that that make us strong? You know, that that what are the things, you know, fortitude, you know, whatever it is that, you know, makes us strong, courage, resilience, obviously. And those, uh, you know, I mentioned a number of them, you know, it's in, in my case, I happen to be smart. So I, you know, but I thought for a very, very, very long time, even though I was, you know, going through college and graduate school, you know, I would tell myself I'm dumb. And I know that sounds ridiculous. Yes. Because of things that were said, how can you be so smart in school and so dumb at home. Mm. Like those words were spoken. And so I believed them. And, uh, and so getting on the other side of that. So what's strong with you? And so that is, that's the thing. That's the bridge. Right. So uh, do you have a relationship with your mom now? Um, let me say my mom has passed, but I mm-hmm. did have a different kind of relationship with my mom. Um, I helped take care of her when she was dying of cancer. And, uh, and so it was, it was, again, superficial. We would talk about the things that she wanted to talk about. So it made it all about her. And that was the way we were able to have a relationship. Was there still friction, <laughs> you know, up until, yes, um, because she was in pain and hurting and, and, you know, all of that. So, but I did have a relationship with her. Yes. Right. But as you said, you understood her differently as you continue to grow yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because she she was she said very, very hurtful things to you all your childhood. Yes. And she had a reason for that. She had uh, beliefs about 
herself and her life that led her to say those hateful things. And they were hateful. Right. I, I believe she yeah. hated at the time you believe she hated you oh, or do you yes, even at the time when I'm growing mm-hmm. up, you know, because mm-hmm. I did, I certainly, um, I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel like anybody was proud of me for my accomplishments in my home, things along those lines. Mm-hmm. And you, I think you say in the book that you, you, you realized maybe later that she saw your father's face and therefore her pain in you, your your That's, biological father, yes. who you didn't find and, out until yes. much later. Yeah. And so that is, um, yes, that is uh, an important part, just like the 2008 event. That was an important part that was created a breakthrough for her and for me. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, okay. So what happened was he came back into our lives or came for the first time in my life, my biological father. And he had conversations with my mom. In fact, they reconciled for a little while. Um, And what she said, she referred to him as the love of her life. And that he... Wow, yeah. Wow. And that, that I was born out of wedlock. And so that love of her life left and joined the military for his good reasons. And so... They reconciled and it was his intent. And he said this, my intent is for you and your mom to have a better relationship. That was like he, when he began to see both of us, cause he would see me. And then when we, you know, he began to see both of us, um, that's, he wanted to be that salve, you know, that healing salve for us. Right. But he, you also realized that he, without even knowing you, most of your life, he loved you unconditionally. Yes, he did. Just flat out unconditionally. And unconditionally. He repeatedly, I, yeah. So what I can say is when, when I found out and his side of the family found out, I went to visit and they had, because my mom had sent them to them, she told me they were a babysitter. My college graduation, my high school graduation, photos of me doing things, um, you know, a number of things. And they had like this, they put them all out, you know, for me to see. And they were like, this is our Lori. We love our Lori, like the cousins and the, the aunt. And, and then what, what Bill did, that's his name. What Bill did to express unconditional love is he called, he was a trucker and he would call me anytime he was going to be in California, in Southern California, called me every time to tell me that he was coming and continued to send. Now he had my address, birthday cards, holiday cards, thinking of you, love you. I love you. I'm proud of you. And I was mean to him for the first few years. And then uh, my, at the time, my soon to be husband was like, he's a really nice guy, Lori. You know, he, at the time, my soon to be, now my husband of 30 years. So, you know, he's a really nice guy. You should get to know him. And so because of that, I was encouraged. And so I did mellow out with, you know, how I spoke to him and really wanted to get to know him and, you know, ask questions about him and his life and, 
his property and the wife that he eventually had. And, you know, so I, I learned about him. Yes. And so that was, that was the unconditional love. Like no matter what I said, he still, you know, loved me, was proud of me regardless of, of anything. And you turned out to be his only child too. Yes. Yeah. So do you think that, do you think that knowing that for yourself helped you also to get to a different place or was it just? Yeah. No. Yes, it, it did. Absolutely. And, you know, he, he died very unexpectedly. He died of a massive heart attack and, and, uh, and so he didn't get to see his first grandchild. Uh, and that was really, um, I'm sure I know that he was like anticipating, you know, um, that role. And so it's, it's really sad to me. And so some of the things I, I've learned or allowed it to sink in retrospectively. So maybe I didn't call it unconditional love when I was 27, when I met him, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or, or the years uh, between then and, you know, 32, 30, 38, 32 when I got married and 34 when I got married and then 38 when he passed away. Mm-hmm. So what is on the horizon for you now? You've written this fantastic book. You're going to continue to change for the better, the people who come into your life who are seeking help. But what, what else is there? What are you thinking about? Well, there's a lot, actually. I happen to be a big thinker. Sometimes uh, I call it too big. Uh, but what I will say is that the workbook um, is coming out, if it's not already out. The audiobook will be coming out. Wonderful. Great. Probably in 2023, more than likely. And then I have another book this year, and it's in process. And that's an anthology of other people, people that I know, business people, attorneys, entrepreneurs, teach, you know, different people that I know and how they used an element, how they used the recipe and, and how they maybe one of them stuck out, you know, for them. And so it's the eight ingredients and the plan is to have at least three success stories uh, for every ingredient. And so that's happening. That'll be published this year. And uh, my super resilient, um, well, Mastering Resilience is a course. So that's that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I have um, public speaking events that I'm doing uh, in the next six months. And then I have book signings. I have one coming up this month in uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia. And so then Yay! So that's, <laughs> hey, that's mastering resilience. But I have this super resilient and mastering resilience is the personal uh, growth to becoming super resilient. That's that's the working title of the book, actually, Becoming Super Resilient. And then I have leadership opportunities for leader, super resilient leaders, super resilient leadership for people who really want to go through and become a better leader because they have some, they're stuck in some areas and they might already attribute it to something that happened earlier in their life. And so they're benefiting from that. And then, um, and then there will be super resilient businesses coming and that's this year as well and that's for people who want to build uh, a super resilient workforce and so it's 
speaking uh, at businesses and I've actually, you know, done it already. It's just the website is coming soon is what I want to say. Uh, but it's really to build that resilient workforce and, um, and the leadership one might be, you know, eventually going to uh, the business. You really are a big thinker. Wow. You, you got, you have a lot coming up on the horizon. I do. So I'm sure that you know that part of the reason why I wanted you on the podcast is because this is a podcast that is focused on the lived experience of foster care, whether it's mm-hmm. kinship care or adoption or, and as you know, many, many kids in care uh, experience extreme trauma that they do not recover from. Yes. And I just wish that your program, that your work were were more available to the county systems all over this country because I think kids could really, really benefit from this. I know you've worked with traumatized kids oh, yes, as yes. well, but I guess we can have a conversation offline. I would love to figure out a way to to bring in your force of trained people to yeah. work with kids in care. Well, I mean, it's, wow. It's, it's already happening. So it's called <gasps> super, super Resilient Youth. It's a series of four videos uh, that use symbols, not people, you know, triangles and squares and, you know, all of that to really get the point, get to the point where they have tools for higher self-esteem. And I say that because that's the first step for kids to become resilient. If they know the good in them, if they know what's strong in them, if they know what qualities they have, when they can be grounded in their true identity of, um, again, the, you know, the belief systems that they had, like really know who they are, then if someone says something contrary to that, they can say, that's not true. And, and it's really in that. So it's using the first few ingredients to get, you know, we talk about I am statements in the book, but to get the the youth that are watching, it's intended, was intended for middle school. And the teachers are taking that down to fifth grade and up into high school because many of the high school uh, students missed out on the whole experience of middle school. And so, you know, emotionally that's where they are. And so that is available. And it's, uh, and I am training other trainers to teach it right now. As we speak, I've identified um, two master trainers to train trainers. And then we have at least 10, and this is just in, in, in one nonprofit organization. And, and in the book, there's a link. In the book, there's a link to uh, Super Resilient Youth, and all the proceeds go to the nonprofit. Oh, wonderful. So in the show notes, I will link to your book and the other resources that you offer as mm-hmm. well. Uh, I, I wonder if there's, I mentioned to you, or you just mentioned the I Believe. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And or will you perhaps read that if you, yes, or I rather I am? Yes, the I am statements. We do it, you know, in the Mastering Resilience, not just Super Resilient You. So let me just, I think it's on. I didn't, oh, here it is. So basically what we're doing in this particular um, in this particular exercise is it's a strategy. It's a strategy. It's like in the middle of the book and it's a strategy for 
mastering resilience. And it takes kind of the first three chapters, I think, of the book and then says, okay, here's how you use the first three chapters of the book. And so it is identifying those strengths, identifying what's, again, what's strong in you, what your characteristics are. And it's based on experience you've already had. So I could say I'm courageous because I got up in front of an audience and did improv. <laughs> I was like, and, um, you know, I was strong because, I mean, literally physically strong because I bench pressed uh, 65 pounds. So, so it's mm-hmm. not just a word, you know, it's, it's like embodies the emotion and feeling of who I am. And so there's an exercise to identify the qualities and characteristics, and then it, it and the culmination of that gets to uh, creating I am statements. So uh, I talk about acknowledging the truth about yourself and then getting in a state where you're feeling those characteristics, qualities, strengths. And the first step, I'll read this now. The first step is by shifting your posture. So, you know, if you find yourself slouched down or, you know, hunched over, you can sit up, shoulders back. So uh, social psychologist, Dr. Amy Cuddy argues that body language impacts how others see us and that it also affects how we see ourselves. Just by sitting upright, you can shift your feelings, sit up, roll your shoulders back and hold your head up, move your body in ways that demonstrate your truth. Then recite your I am statements from the previous chapter that you've created. And if you haven't created them yet, say the following mindset shifts aloud with me. So it's that. I am worthy. I am enough. I'm here for a purpose. I'm a loyal and loving spouse, wife. I'm a great parent. I'm a great leader. My purpose is And what I wrote in the book is to be a vessel of love designed to help heal the brokenhearted. I am a compassionate person who sees the good in people. I'm a bright light that ignites the spark in people that fuels their confidence. I am a healer. I am a warrior. I am resilient. And whatever your I am statements are, it says, let yourself feel the power of the words Express these words profoundly within your consciousness and simultaneously tell your unconscious the truth. Acknowledge that this is your true uh, self and reframe those negative thoughts with your I am statement. See, I just love this because you mentioned earlier that, okay, it's great if you hopefully there's one person that sees your authentic self and and Mm -hmm. acknowledges you in a way that allows all of the bad things that have Mm -hmm. been told to you about yourself Mm -hmm. to at Mm -hmm. least soften them somewhat. Right. Yeah. So you have, so you, you can, you can hang on to, well, he said, I'm really smart. So maybe, maybe I am a little bit smart. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm not as dumb as my mom says. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can be smart, but then Mm -hmm. this takes it to the next place, which is you own it. You embrace it. You wrap around it for yourself. So it's not just what somebody is saying to you. It's what you are living in. Yes, exactly. And I think now I remember I didn't complete 
the answer to the question. So I did have people who believed in me, like a second grade teacher. You know, I she noticed I finished first and I would be fidgety and maybe, you know, disrupt the class talking. And she said, will you be my helper and pick up the papers of the children that have finished their work and help them if they need help? So she didn't, she could have sent me to the principal's office, a different teacher threatened to make a referral to the principal's office. Um, She could have done that. She saw that strength in me. She saw that, you know, I finished early uh, because I was capable of finishing early and she redirected it, you know, to something positive in me. And, you know, I had a mentor in college. I was really struggling with science because I was on the track to be a nursing, uh, a nurse. And she said, (laughs) I really bombed actually. And she said, have you thought about psychology as a major? Uh, You're really good at it. She was the head of the psychology department. You're really good at it. Have you considered that? So it's a reframing. I'm not dumb because I can't pass these science classes. I'm actually really excelling in another subject. And she didn't say, oh, you're dumb because you're not passing. I was telling myself that. Uh, But then on the track and immediately I just said it was, I think it was 19 years old. And I said, I'm getting a PhD. So these people like that, who've reframed qualities in me that I thought were bad, they've spoken into me things about the qualities that they see. Yeah, that's wonderful. You mentioned something at the beginning of the book related to that, too, about the impact that that as an adult, you can actually feel better and be better because of your role in acting as a good mentor for a child. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's true. It is true. And that was a, the original audience were leaders and influencers of youth and the and the point there is we have kind of what i believe is a moral imperative to heal ourselves and the children in our care or the children that depend on us can only heal to the extent of our own healing they can't pass us up you know um if i'm teaching if, if a student is learning trigonometry and the teacher only knows algebra, they're not going to be able to teach it, <laughs> you know, correctly. So it's those experiences that we have as leaders. And so it does change us. Absolutely. This recipe changes us. And you mentioned it's impacted you already. Yes. Absolutely. And I think even, uh, you know, I think that my work at, as a, as a CASA, um, has made me a better person. It's mm. made me a healthier person. Yes. And it continues to do so. I continue mm-hmm. to learn from the kids whom I meet and who, uh, you know, I, I also uh, volunteer with my, with my partner at, at Peace for Kids here in Los Angeles, which also is, which is a community organization that serves um, youth with a live foster care experience. And every time we're there, mm-hmm. we grow. Yes, we we we're almost forced to because because you by doing so by becoming a better person you can see the effect you have on children who are looking yes. up to you. Yes, you can see that absolutely, and 
thank you for being a court-appointed special advocate, a CASA worker, because it's just, uh, it's a volunteer position. And you, you um, generously give your time and your emotion to these children. And, you know, I can't thank you enough for that. And yes, in roles that I've had impact, you know, lots and lots of children through training other counselors and, you know, overseeing, leading a group of counselors and uh, psychologists and, you know, many others. And I've spoken to groups of CASA workers and really talked to them about these uh, steps that we can take to, it's simple, not easy. It's not a substitute for mental health treatment at all. And also it's something that we can do. And like you said, refer back to, and that's why I created the workbook because I wanted to make sure that there were extra pages that, you know, you could write on it and things like that. And so I just believe in what you do and I'm thankful for it. I believe in what you do too, Dr. Lori. I really do. I really do. I want to ask you one last question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? Mm. I, I think that um, my own mental health issues that are attributable to um, ACEs and that occurred in my childhood, I haven't really spelled that out. And one of the things that I did was I cut the soles of my feet and so that they would be uh, in a place that they weren't visible and uh, no one would know that about me to the extent of which it occurred uh, unless I told them. And you did it on the soles of your feet because no one would see it. Yes. But also to cut the soles of your feet, you would constantly be walking on the cut. Feeling alive. Mm-hmm. So, so first making the cut and then feeling the pain of the cut over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And, and only you would know. Yes. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you want to share with our guests about your work or what you love or what you're doing or, or anything you're dreaming about or anything for them? Yeah, and here's what I want to say for them is because we just brought this up and I just revealed, you know, the cutting is that, you know, there are certain things that we can predict the risk of uh, without intervention. And so not only do the ACEs occur, there's a residual effect or an aftermath of the impact of the ACEs and the risks you know, mental health conditions, different kinds of mental health conditions, specifically health conditions, financial, you know, uh, decisions, you know, a disruption problems, and then social problems and educational problems. So they're very predictive. And the higher the number of ACEs, the more the risk and without intervention, uh, the higher the risk. And so CASA workers are an intervention, a protective factor, and someone who kind of helps break that 
cycle and reduce the risk of things in the future. And I can also say, because I was a child with mental health conditions, that's again, I hope, an expression of hope for others. If we had those things, you know, in childhood or into adulthood, it's possible to become resilient on through that and to recover from and forgive oneself, have compassion for oneself in the past, for the past behaviors. Thank you so much, Dr. Laurie. Thank you. Mm, Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Laurie, for sharing your story with us. And thank you for taking your lived experience and turning it into something that's a tool for others to help them through difficult times. You're giving back on a huge scale. Thank you so much. Our next guest is Ron Jenkins. Ron is a former foster youth and now a youth advocate. He counsels youth in the juvenile justice system to help them manage the same thing he went through. Ron spent most of his childhood in foster care and at age 13 had some very dark thoughts. But that all changed when one man showed him a different and better way. Join us next week for Ron Jenkins. Thank you for listening and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposto. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.